Chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. This is God's holy word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and that's uh, where we take our title for our lesson this morning, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. <clears throat> I'm going to uh, turn now and uh, read. It's, it's a little lengthy, so I'll go ahead and read here from the front, but you can follow along. Uh, Belgic Confession, Article 24. I'll, re- I'll also read for us Article uh, 25. So Article 24 is printed there in our bulletins. It's a little bit on the long side, but it's a very important piece of teaching for us this morning. We believe that this true faith, produced in man by the hearing of God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerates him and makes him a new man, causing him to live the new life and freeing him from the slavery of sin. Therefore, far from making people cold toward living in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith, quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. So then, it is impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith working through love which leads a man to do of himself the works that God has commanded in his word. These works proceeding from the good root of faith are good and acceptable to God since they are all sanctified by his grace. Yet, they do not count toward our justification, for by faith in Christ we are justified, even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good, any more than the fruit of the tree could be good, if the tree is not good in the first place. So then we do good works, but not for merit. For what could we merit? What would we merit? Rather, we are indebted to God for the good works we do, and not he to us, since it is he who works in us both to will and do according to his good pleasure. Thus keeping in mind what is written, when you have done all that is commanded, you then you shall say, we are unworthy servants. We have done what it was our duty to do. Yet we do not wish to deny that God rewards good works, For it is by his grace that he crowns his gifts. Moreover, although we do good works, we do not base our salvation on them. 
For we cannot do any work that is not defiled by our flesh, and also worthy of punishment. And even if we could point to one, memory of a single sin is enough for God to reject that work. So we would always be in doubt, tossed back and forth without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be tormented constantly if they did not rest on the merit of the suffering and death of our Savior. You see there that closing note on assurance, which is so central to the Reformation uh, gospel teaching, recovery, that it is comfort, not fear, that drives us uh, to holiness and to faithfulness. Article 25, briefly, um, we believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ, and that all foreshadowings have come to an end, so the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Yet the truth and substance of these things remains for us in Christ Jesus, in whom they have been fulfilled. Nevertheless, we continue to use the witnesses drawn from the law and the prophets to confirm us in the gospel and to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God according to his will. And Article 25 also speaks to sanctification because it it reminds us of the status of our relationship to the law, in particular uh, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament which in many ways defined in great detail what you had to do to be a good and faithful uh, believer, a good and faithful Jew. But now that that has been fulfilled in Christ, our obedience, our faithfulness, our love of God is not defined by ceremonial ritual works. It is defined uh, by our love of neighbor. And we see this theme again and again in the New Testament, that there is one law that fulfills them all. That is the law of love. Well, brothers and sisters, our scripture lesson this morning was Ephesians chapter 2. One of the the classic statements of the doctrines of grace. Um, And note again the progression of how this text flows, the building blocks as it were. Paul is emphatic about the nature of our sin. He says it not once but twice, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. If you want a biblical story to think of, when you think of how you have been saved, think of John chapter 10, Lazarus laying on a cold stone for, you know, a number of days, long enough that his friends are worried that he stinks. And Jesus goes and speaks to him, says, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man lives again. That is spiritually the image of how uh, we are saved. And Ephesians tells us that while dead, we were made alive together with Christ. Lazarus doesn't raves himself off the stone. He doesn't contribute a lot. This salvation is a gift. Explicitly, Paul says, not a result of works that no one may boast. We contribute nothing to our salvation except our sins, which we give to Christ, which we confess. And uh, he gives us his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin, Paul writes in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, that we might become the righteousness of God. Um, and yet, make no mistake, it is no mistake, it's, it's a part and a parcel of Paul's teaching, that here where we get one of the clearest statements of our total inability to save ourselves, We also get a very clear statement of the importance of sanctification and its relationship to justification. It is here that Paul explains that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. When our catechism talks about if we're saved by faith alone, part three on gratitude, if we're saved by faith alone, why do we have to do good works? The answer is 
The first answer, there's a number of reasons given, but the first answer is because this is the purpose for which we have been saved. And that's exactly what Paul says here. God prepared these good works for us that we should walk in them. And so this morning we want to look a little bit more closely at what our confession says about sanctification. It's important that it's not comprehensive here. Uh, I think Article 24 doesn't say everything that can or should be said about sanctification. And that's one of the reasons we look to our catechism, look to other places in in our church. Uh, But it says something very important. And this is the big takeaway point here. Contrary to critics, clearly teaching that we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, that that we are justified by contributing nothing to that of ourselves, that doesn't cause people to become cold or heartless about doing good works. It doesn't remove our motivation for good works. And that is always and often the fear when the gospel is preached. Well, as Paul confronts this objection in Romans, well, should we sin more then? That God can forgive more? If God likes forgiving so much, uh, my seminary professor, Bob Godfrey, used to say, you know, God likes to forgive and I like to sin. It's a great relationship. But that's not the New Testament's picture here. In fact, we don't deny sanctification. Uh, What we do is we, we distinguish it carefully from justification. And that's really the key, we believe, to a biblical picture of Christian holiness. It's ironic that... And if you're not familiar with this term, it pops up a lot in these conversations. Uh, The fear that I just described, that because we're forgiven freely of our sins, that we won't worry about obeying God's law, is often called antinomianism, anti against the law, nomos. That if you preach the gospel, you're against the law. But that is not the case at all. And it's ironic that, uh, that Reformed Christians are both called antinomians and Puritans. These are the same Christians, brothers and sisters. And it was the Reformed teaching of justification that led to one of the greatest uh, centuries of Christian holiness and Christian living. Uh, The 16th and 17th. They were so holy, they wouldn't have even put up a Christmas tree. So, uh, how's that for holiness? Now, let's look clearly at what our confession teaches. True faith. You notice how we begin in Article 24. True faith is created by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the hearing of God's word. Don't miss the centrality of the word of God, of preaching. This is what we, in our Reformed tradition, call the means of grace. We don't have an article in the Belgic Confession of Faith on preaching. But preaching comes up again and again and again in our confessions. Because it's how God transforms His people. It's how He creates faith in them. Faith regenerates and makes us new. This language of regeneration is just a Latin form of being born again. So we are born as new creatures. John told Nicodemus uh, in uh, John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus um, that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. In that same passage from 2 Corinthians 5, where we read that the Christ became sin, that we might become righteousness, Paul writes that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And there's actually not an article in the Greek. It's just, he is new creation. When you become a believer, you're heaven. You're glory. You are the new age breaking in to this age. And it's this new life that is the origin and the source of the good works we do as Christians. 
It doesn't make us cold. It fills our hearts with joy and thankfulness and love. Apart, uh, this is a, a wonderful line in our, in our confession. Apart from this justifying faith, apart from this, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. This is one of the great themes of the Protestant Reformation because what came before the medieval understanding of salvation was that it was our fear and terror of God's judgment that drove people to holiness. And the reformer said that the problem here is that the only reason you ever do a good work is to escape the fires of hell. That's not truly loving your neighbor. Every time you try to love your neighbor, you're also loving yourself a little bit. There's always a mixed ulterior motive in play. And the reformer said, no, because I am filled with the love of God in Christ. I have no fear about judgment or condemnation. I can then stumble along in doing good works. And I don't have to worry about doing them perfectly or from the purity of my heart. I just do them for the good and care and compassion of my neighbor. So Luther speaks of because our vertical relationship with God Because the love of God has been set aright by the gospel, we can now love our neighbor freely for the first time. Again, apart from justifying faith, we can never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for ourselves. We do good works for a totally different motivation. If you believe your good works contribute to salvation, they're always self-interested. But love is selfless. We do our good works out of love of God and neighbor. And frankly, we can just summarize the law as Jesus did. What's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is the second one like it. That's why the doctrine of justification is uh, so important. As we said last week, the doctrine of a standing and falling church, not only because it's how sinners are comforted, but it's how sinners live holy lives. Justification is what gives us the love of Christ in our church, as that love comes into our hearts and flows out through us. Now, the next key point is that good works necessarily follow this new birth. A good tree bears good fruit. You can't help it. You are new creation. I know our elder Chris Robbins has has planted, uh, what are the bulbs from your grandmother's house? Irises, these, these iris bulbs, right? And he puts the bulbs in the earth and he's flown them out from, from his home and, and, and you wait, right? What's going to happen? Are, are they going to pop out? Are they going to bear the fruit of, of flowers? In this case, not fruit, but, but beauty. And you wait and you wait and you wait. But, but it's in there. That new life is there in that bulb. It's like a ticking time bomb. And it will burst forth. And that's the image, again, The fruit of the Spirit. Jesus tells about sowing seed. Constantly this agricultural image. The Christian life is cultivating one's life. So that the new life that God plants in us will and can and necessarily bear fruit. Notice that throughout these opening paragraphs. The doctrine of sanctification is constantly taught in reference to the doctrine of justification. We never graduate from the doctrine of justification. It's hearing about the gospel that energizes us to go out and love our neighbors. Justifying faith is the engine of the Christian life. Um, um, There was a a book a number of years ago, very best-selling, I think it was Rick Warren, right? The Purpose Driven Life. 
And, um, and you know, like, w- what's wrong with that? That's like a lot of a wonderful piece of wisdom. You know, it's really good to have purpose in your life. The Christian life gives you purpose. And then, you know, a whole book about, like, let's, let's think about what our purpose is here and, and live according to our purpose. And our friend uh, Michael Horton uh, wrote a book answering to that called The Gospel-Driven Life. And his point in that book was uh, the Christian life is like a sailboat. And the gospel is the wind that pushes us along. Sadly, just reflecting on your purpose and how you should live according to purpose, that's just law. That's just instructions. That doesn't give you the power to do what you should do. But the gospel is that power. And so justifying faith remains the engine of the Christian life. And that impacts how and what we preach and teach here at Christ Reformed Church. It impacts how we organize our liturgy. So that the law and the gospel might lead us to depart from this place with our hearts full of gratitude. We talk about guilt, grace, and gratitude each and every Lord's Day. And when Luke and I preach, when whoever's in this pulpit preaches, his mission is to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. That object of justifying faith. Um, Our mission isn't to make you feel a little more guilty this week. Some preachers think that way. Whether they do so explicitly or implicitly. Our mission isn't to try to make you read your Bible a little bit more. Now, I'd love you all to read your Bible. I'd love me to read my Bible a little bit more, if I was going to be perfectly honest. But I will read the Word of God if I love what I'm finding there, if I'm excited about Christ, if I'm grateful for His kindness, if I treasure it as as a gift from God. So that's why, that's how this doctrine shapes the life of our church and our worship and our prayers as a community. Finally, uh, the, this article continues that, and, and emphasizes that our good works are not for merit. There's a reference here to Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, now listen to Paul. He's talking about the life of obedience in the Christian life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, well he's talking about fear. But then what does he say in the same breath? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So his idea of fear and trembling here is not that we're terrified of God's judgment. Not that the peace we have through the gospel has been somewhat uh, taken away or, or qualified or made conditional. Rather, the fear and trembling is that you would have awe in the presence of God's mercy and grace. The way Paul bursts forth in doxological joy. So far, our good works not something that we earn merit before God. They're actually God's own works. We are instruments in His hands. Now, there is an important point here because it came up in the debate of the 16th century. Well, what do you do with the scriptures when they talk about the reward of good works? Clearly, works have some merit. God rewards them. In Romans chapter 2, Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Revelation chapter 2, I know your works. This is one of the letters to the churches. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. Second John, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Romans 11, for if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What's... What's the New Testament talking about here? If it's all about justifying faith, bearing fruit, no merits, what of these rewards? And so this is one question that 
often confuses this issue. Well, our understanding, our response to this is that we do not wish to deny that God rewards good works, as our confession says, but it is by His grace that He crowns His gifts. Brothers and sisters, a good work is a work that is agreeable to God's law. You can't break God's law and still be doing a good work. His moral law is clear. The Ten Commandments summarize how it is that one loves God and neighbor. It is a work that is conformable, agreeable to God's law, and a work that is done in faith. And what does that mean? It means that as you are doing the work, you're trusting in Christ for your salvation alone. You're not trusting in that work. And that faith, just as it purifies us, washes us pure and clean, it makes and sanctifies our good works. God looks at our good works, as poor and stumbling as they may be, as the works of His own dear Son, Jesus Christ. He imputes His righteousness even to our good works if they are done in faith. Now, just want to briefly touch on Article 25 and, and the idea of Christian liberty. Uh, the Reformed tradition, in many ways, and this is a subject for another, uh, another sermon, another lecture, is uh, very concerned about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a lot of confusion on this among the Anabaptists, those who were... Uh, causing such troubles at the times this confession was written. Um, some, many of the Anabaptists completely rejected the Old Testament. Now, the, the Reformation was critical of how the Roman Catholic Church took the Old Testament and its ceremonies and its priesthood as a model for the Christian Church. And said, no, we don't have feast days. We don't have fasts and feasts. We don't have uh, pilgrimages, works of offerings, sacrifices. Uh, the Lord's Supper is not uh, a sacrifice that pays for our sins, which was and is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. That it was a bloodless sacrifice of Christ Jesus on the altar in the church every Sunday morning. They said, we reject that ceremonial law of the Old Testament. It has been fulfilled in Christ. When the Christian comes to you, dear Christian, well, what do I do? How do I live a faithful life? What good works does God require of me? The starting point, turn to our catechism, is in the two tables of the law. Put to death the old man. Bring to life the new man. Love God. How do we love God? By worship. By gathering with God's people. By reading and listening to His Word. By praying to Him. How do we love our neighbor? Following God's law there. And we see this uh, really traced out quite clearly in Colossians 2 and 3. We don't have time to, to read those chapters or apply them uh, quickly here, but, but Paul begins by saying, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or the Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those laws were designed to point us forward towards Christ and to the new creation. We are now living in the new creation. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism that's like fasting and, and punishing one's body. And severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then Paul continues. Put to death what is earthly in you. Put on then. Bring to life uh, the new self with its practices. Uh, being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And this is where Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek. We're all one in this new creation. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He speaks of worship. 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This massive undertaking of 613, however many laws that the Pharisees enumerated, the New Testament says there's one law, love. Do everything. Do everything in the name of Christ, in the pursuit of love. And the Lord will work in you His holiness. That's what the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness, is given to us for. To transform us into that perfect image of our Savior. Let's pray. Merciful God, uh, we know that we are weak and powerless to save ourselves, to get up off of uh, the table in the mortician's uh, parlor. We know we can't crawl out of our own coffins. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit you've made us new creation. You've given us new life. And we now despise sin, Lord, for the first time. We now see how ugly it is. We pray that you would help us put to death sin. We pray that you would help us uh, to uh, embrace our baptismal promise that we've been buried with Christ. And live as the new creatures we truly are. We pray for your word, your law to dwell in us, to drive us to holiness, in joy and thanksgiving and love for God and for our neighbor. In Jesus Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.